Before we dive in, quick announcement. Today's episode marks the start of a new season for The Deep End. In season two, we'll keep exploring ideas that matter, but with more chances for you, the audience, to get involved than ever before. In addition, from now on, we'll be moving to two episodes a week, every Monday and Wednesday morning. Our weekly Substack email will still be once a week, but we'll move to Thursdays. Sign up for our newsletter at thedeepend.substack.com. By design, every web 3.0 company has an open source protocol, which also means to go into web 3.0, to be part of the future of web, you need to be open source if you're not. So if you think of all the companies who don't have their source code open, it will be almost impossible for them to to, ju- to make the wedge, to make the jump into web 3.0. But one day, who knows, um, a blockchain, let's say Ethereum or Solana or some other blockchain is efficient enough for us to run actually the whole infrastructure decentralized the way, you know, Filecoin is fully decentralized. That's, I think, that's that'll gonna, that's gonna be a, an amazing day for, for everyone in, in our team and community. the deep end for creating a space where we skip the surface level and go in depth into ideas that inspire people to build. I'll be your guide as we explore possible futures of internet communities, creator tools, climate tech, longevity, and much, much more. There are no experts in uncharted territory, only pioneers. The deep end invites these trailblazers to turn their experiences into knowledge and ideas that others need to start their own founder odyssey. I want to take this chance to thank you, our listeners, for being such an enthusiastic audience throughout our first 21 episodes. Your insight has been instrumental in shaping the show. We hope you can continue to come to our live events and show your support for the show by letting us know what you learned from the episodes on Twitter, in the YouTube comments, and on the Apple Podcast review page. Joining me this week in the deep end is Pierre Richardson. Pierre is a former OnDeck fellow and teammate who is now the co-founder and co-CEO of Cal.com. That's C-A-L.com, an open source scheduling tool. Pierre views the internet as a democratic, transparent, and open technology that is currently undergoing a renaissance. Open source software development was the spiritual precursor to 2021's Web3 boom. Tinkerers like Pierre are ecstatic that technologists are returning to the very fundamentals of the web that made it so inclusive and exciting in the early 2000s. In this episode, Pierre explains how the internet can finally return to its decentralized roots because of the incentive structures that developed over the last few years. We also dive into several fun other topics, including how to pick the right web domain, how to build a company of two CEOs, and what the differences in cultures of compensation transparency are between the US and Germany. The Deep End is produced by On Deck, where top talent goes on to accelerate their ideas and careers. We hope that those who listen to the ideas on the show are inspired to build. To learn more about On Deck's programs, visit beyonddeck.com. For show notes and additional resources related to The Deep End, check out thedeepend.substack.com. Pierre Richardson, welcome to The Deep End. Hello, hi. Hey, Marshall. Great to meet you. Great to meet you, too. Let's talk about calendars. It's the type of subject where two and a half years ago, I wouldn't have had any thinking about whatsoever. But increasingly, I think myself and 
every single part of the audience, especially people who work in the tech spaces, are going to be stuck with a lot of emails, different applications, different parts there. So what got you into the calendar scheduling space in the first place? Right. Yeah, I mean, I think I use my calendar more than email nowadays. I mean, I have most of my conversations on Slack or direct messages. So I think the reason why I got into this business is actually uh, surprisingly out of my own um, requirements. So uh, before joining on deck, um, I was head of product at, at on deck for about seven months. Um, I was working on leanhire.com, which is a, a hiring marketplace now run by on deck uh, for um, contractors to become uh, full-time employees um, after after the uh, trial phase. So, and for, for that business, we were using uh, like a, a SaaS scheduling product. And um, that was just not enough for us because we wanted to make, you know, changes to the design and the API, like the workflow, everything. Um, and we also didn't have like any insights if a booking happened, or if it was rescheduled or canceled. So that's kind of like out of my own necessity, we... Yeah, we we were looking into options, and so I went on Google and was like, "Calendly open source," and there's just no results, right? So um, there wasn't really any any hits. Um, yeah, and then we decided to um, spin out um, Calendzo as an open source alternative. Yeah, and that was basically the start of of this crazy journey. So that's kind of like what got me into into scheduling and calendars. But um, I mean, yeah, I've been in I've been in tech for like the last 10 years. So I've obviously always used my calendar for everything, for my private things, but also for my business things. And yeah, it's it's great to be now being able to build like a core piece of, of web infrastructure with yeah, like a really big focus on open source. Why the focus on open source? So open source has many, many benefits. Um, I'm a big fan of taking the tool that has like that does the job the best you know if you think of cryptocurrencies or blockchain and all that um you should not use a tool just because it sounds funky or fancy you should use it because it's literally the best for the job and for us it is open source is the best that we can do for making scheduling um, accessible for everyone Uh, it means that anyone can use the product uh, spin it up themselves you have uh, full authority over the data. Um, you have uh, full authority over the design, the layout. Uh, you can make any changes. And that's something you can only do with open source. I mean, when you think of SaaS, software as a service, you're, you're renting a license. Uh, you, you're renting your access, essentially. Whereas open source, you not only you, but everyone owns the code. It's, it's, a, it's, a, public, it's a public good in a way where anyone can contribute. Anyone can make changes, and um, yeah, at the end of the day, everyone owns a piece of it in a sense. So, for us, scheduling um, is really important to a point where we want to build infrastructure for, let's say, telehealth medicine companies, or even for on deck to connect fellows and fellows and or fellows and experts. Um, and that needs to be open. You know, there should not be a single point of failure in in between these core interactions that we we have every day on the web. Could you help paint a stronger picture for me as your most, because I'm in your most basic calendar user. So what are the failure points 
in a closed system versus the open model you're discussing? Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously uptime is a, is a concern, you know, when companies of a certain size have hundreds or thousands of bookings, um, every time there's a downtime or, or, or they don't have, you know, full authority over the, the server infrastructure becomes a business risk. You know, I mean, a day of, of downtime is, is probably a couple million in, in lost revenue if you're in the, in, the, in the scheduling space. But also I think just the, the raw fact that um, you're not sharing your data with anyone else other than, you know, your own database. Um, it's, it's communications data. So who meets, if you're a VC firm, let's say, I wouldn't want to trade, like open my deal flow to a third party, you know, uh, it should be, it's my core IP, who I'm meeting and how many times, at what time, how long, who's joining. That information is really, really critical for, for everyone who's running a, a sensitive business. So that's, that's, I mean, yeah, again, that's where open source shines and also being able to, you know, be, be public about the fact that there's no, no backdoor, no, we're not selling data. We can't literally sell data or, you know, like there's no, um, nothing baked into the product that you're not aware of. You know, everything's open. People can do their own due diligence on their own time. I like how you talked about open source shining. Let me ask you to put a different hat on for anyone who's listening. Pierre's actually wearing a hat, so that's not just metaphorical in this case. Where historically hasn't open source shined? Yeah, that's a very good point that I talked to with, a, with an advisor today. Um, a lot of open source, I mean, first of open source is as old as the web or even older. I mean, if you think of Linux and, and Ubuntu and even Docker and all the, the, the new generation of open source, um, I think for the longest time, open source was viewed as a, as kind of like a hobby or side thing or not legitimate business. A lot of open source companies haven't been really taken like serious in the past, but I mean, then we've obviously seen like infrastructure companies like MongoDB or so go public, which kind of like broaden the attention for, for others to, to take them serious. But I think what most, most of the time open source has, hasn't shined is, um, design, user experience and focus on the customer. Because I, if you think at, about, a lot of open source companies or not, not companies, a lot of open source projects, they grow organically. You know, they have an idea, they start with an initial core and then somewhere from like around the world, people join in and build things, you know, and that can become a mess mm -hmm. if you're not ahead of, if, if you're not ahead of it, because some, someone adds the button on the top right and then someone else adds the, adds another button on the top left and everything becomes a, I mean, we've all seen some of the open source products out there, which, are just not really user friendly, just to to call and call it that. Um, so one thing we did as the literally first hire for our company was to hire a product designer, lead like senior product mm -hmm. designer, to go really deep and think about our first design system, but also how how interactions should look like. And we've actually open source kind of like or opened up our design references, like our design design system. It's uh, design.cal.com. So anyone else who wants to contribute to the project need to follow the design guides. So that means suddenly, instead of having like a patchwork of, of hundreds of people who are committing, 
you know, have a very consistent product with very consistent UI, very consistent user experience. And um, I think that's that's what also companies like Superbase have been doing um, to really show, hey, a legitimate product can be built in open source, even though there's, you know, potentially hundreds of people working on it. Could you talk a bit about the tension between running a company and then doing something that's open source? So there's been references to community, but obviously you're you're creating a company, you raise money. Just talk about operationalizing it, because the thing that was really interesting in your initial explanation of why folks are sometimes down on open source is you said that they see it as a hobby, but running the business is obviously not a hobby. So talk about that part. Yeah, um, that's very interesting because we, as as very few companies, have decided to have a a co CEO structure, like a duo duo CEO structure, in a sense where I'm the commercial co CEO and Bailey, my co founder, is the the technical um, developer focused uh, CEO. So, at its core, most or kind of every open source company is building both kind of like a non profit foundation <laughs> and the commercial company that uses the like open source foundation, the, the work of the open door, open source foundation. So we decided very early on that both things are of equal importance, you know, like you can't build the commercial product without the underlying open openness of the, the code base. And you can't build a product for the next 10 years without the commercial side, which gives you funding and, and resources and, and hires and continue support and, 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 and upgrades. So when you have an open source company that just requires a lot of attention, you see a lot of burnout in the open source community when people are not donating or they're not becoming patrons. And then there's like this solo engineer who has been running this open source project with 20,000 stars over the last two or three years, but they just don't have the resources to properly hire, properly build a product, build a team. So for us, it was very important from the day one that we have both the commercial side, which I'm kind of leading, and then the, the open source developer-focused f- foundational side, uh, which Bailey's taking care of. So um, I don't think co-CEOs are common, like co-CEO structures, but I think for, for especially open source companies who, who kind of build two organizations at the same time, um, it makes a lot of sense. And, and as long as we, we both are very clear about who's doing what, um, it'll probably work out fine. So, um, yeah, that's kind of like how we think of, of, of the company as at the moment. Yeah. Here's helping on the working out part. Can you speak a little more about how this operationalizes itself, especially along the lines of the nonprofit side, because you're talking about community members donating, participating, what does that actually look like and how do you factor those interactions into the overall business? Yeah. So we don't actually have a lot of donations. We very early on decided that donations is not a sustainable business model. It's more like continuous fundraising. And if everyone has been in tech, that's usually not a good idea to build a business if you're continuously fundraising. Um, so yeah, we, we don't actually have donations, but we have, um, obviously a, a paid pro plan, which if, if you don't want to, you know, self-host and you, you're not really interested in owning all of the benefits of, you just want to have a cal.com slash slash Marshall or slash peer link, then you're, 
you'll you'll be able to to pay twelve twelve dollars per month um, as a pure SaaS business. So operationally wise, um, yeah, of course we have about a thousand, almost a thousand developers or like eight hundred developers in our Slack who need to be taken care of, you know, like mm-hmm. support and and everything. So that's that's very interesting, you know, going from a, a handful of of people to um, almost a thousand. That's uh, very very tough. So we hired a community manager who's helping out. Um, yeah, other than that, operationally wise, um, just staying ahead of all the bugs and things that break at scale. I think that's um, the core part of our operations right now. And then obviously looking into commercial use cases for enterprise companies or um, foundations, um, like big organizations uh, who want to want to run um, scheduling, essentially. That's kind of like the day-to-day business. What's interesting here is, as someone who's coming from outside the open source community, or frankly, any deep online community here, the idea of 800 people working on something like this is a lot to take in, and I'm sure it is for a lot of listeners. Can you speak about, A, how do you find 800 people <laughs> who want to work on a project like this, right? Because I think the reason why we're rooting the conversation in open source in the cow conversation is it's not as if you're saying, hey, here's this crypto DAO right. that is going to revolutionize Web3 <laughs> NFT speculation reference. How does, how does the process of actually building a community in a space that's deeply important but not exactly sexy work? Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, um, I mean, first to get this straight, not everyone <laughs> in the Slack has yet contributed to our product. I mean, obviously, a lot of people are reporting bugs, which at the end of the day is also contributions. Um, but it's not like 800 people are simultaneously pushing code updates. That would that would be mental. I, I think we would completely break down and cry if that would be the case uh, at our small size of a team. No, I mean, um, people join just out of curiosity and... Um, Obviously, the open source community has so much more to offer than just writing code. We have a lot of people who just want to translate, who want to translate English to Russian or Spanish or Italian or French. Um, then there's people who want to write documentation, who want to just clean up issues, you know, f- like add labels to certain PRs to make it easier for someone to read. So the great thing about open source is there's some... Um, pretty much no expectations and everything, every minor thing is great. Like fixing a typo in, in a, in a retme or so. Um, it's just about like when I remember when I got started in, in, in tech about 10 years ago that I, I got my hands on WordPress. Like I, I zip, like downloaded the zip somewhere. I didn't even know of Git. Like I, I didn't know what Git was. And I opened up the, the code base and first I didn't understand a single line of code, you know, like it was just so many things and everything was kind of like, what is this? But as you set it up yourself and you slowly touch a few files and you make some changes, you're like, your first realization is how is this free? You know, like why did someone just give this to me for free? (laughs) And the second is, huh, this makes a lot of sense. Um, Let me write a simple function that does this thing that I want for my blog or something, you know? So you start changing bits, you start changing the CSS, you start changing the HTML, the, the templates and everything. So 
and then you slowly adopt and maybe you at some point you build your own plugin. For me, that was eye-opening to see that there's this massive, massive community of WordPress. Um, and, and, and also it was kind of like educating the next, the next generation of, of engineers. You know, it's people run hackathons to build stuff for open source. And that was really cool. So in a sense, it was my first touch point. I mean, most engineers first experience are in open source. You know, you just clone something and break it apart. Um, and, uh, it's really cool to now see the same. Uh, interest in our community where people propose integrations or they build like one of our core contributors built the Stripe integration like on his own and then we hired them, you know? So uh, just because it's, it's great that you see that impact and then we, we reach out to that person and be like, Hey, do you want to work on this in full time? Like you seem really interested. And then, yeah. And then a week later they, they join your, your team and, um, I think that's kind of like the spirit of, of this open and transparent culture where every, everyone can collaborate and work on it. And then um, if you want to do more, you can just join the, the core team and, and get actually paid for working in public, which is great. So speaking of the customizable open aspects of this, can you give some more examples to make it tangible? Because once again, for most people who are listening, I'm sure the depths of their experience is, hey, Calendly works pretty well. Insert thing from Google works pretty well. You're probably not a VC with proprietary information. So how help understand how that could, because once again, the key, and by the way, I like your mission tagline on the website, which is connecting a billion people by 2031 through calendar scheduling. It seems to be the inherent or implicit argument here is that the open parts of this system, the customizable parts, are what's actually going to help you get to, once again, a huge hypothetical percentage of the population. So just speak to how everyday people who aren't top tier VCs or people with direct proprietary right. information could think of how it's useful. Yeah. I, it kind of goes back to the point of WordPress where like PHP... It, if you ever talk to anyone, like no one's using PHP for like if you start a new company. However, it has like 90% market share of, of I, I guess it's 90% or 80% or some some horrendous big number of market share on the web. Um, and that is primarily due to WordPress being still so actively in use by so many, many people. I think there's, I need to look into the numbers, but at least a billion websites running on WordPress. So they and 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 that's just the websites right so imagine how many eyeballs <laughs> the technology of wordpress has it's probably in the trillions probably trillions trillion of views of, of eyeballs have, have touched the, the wordpress code base so at its core you can only reach the sheer death of like of adoption when you have something that is so open and and free in a sense as well you know free available um for anyone to be, you know, working with. And the same argument could be made with, um, with let's say, web agencies. Back in the days, if you had a request to, I want my website, the web agency would use WordPress. Now, if you say, hey, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a yoga teacher or a personal trainer, I need, I need scheduling, you know, everything's on the web. You probably go for the open source alternative, right? It's just more accessible. It's it's open. I can make changes. I can resell it. I can tap into the 
big uh, ecosystem of developers. So I think you can only reach the size and the scale, like as you said, like the billion people that we want to connect, um, if you have something that is um, just a commodity, you know, like just something that completely, it's a, it becomes a no-brainer to use, you know. Um, very simple to set up, very easy to make changes, um, and it becomes the the email type of protocol, you know. I mean, email has touched billions of people, uh, WhatsApp has. Just very simple, very accessible, and very free. Um, that's how we think of scheduling. I'm so glad you brought up the WordPress example because it's helping me better conceptualize the point you're making. Because, you know, as any non technical person who's worked for organizations will tell you, you just run into WordPress. By, you know, <laughs> I come from the media background and everything's run on WordPress, and no one likes WordPress. We all hate <laughs> WordPress. But as you are pointing out, there are just inherent reasons why it is just the standard for good or for ill that folks use. And it seems within the history you're describing, it's because to a certain degree, it was the default option. That's what things built. The customizable part was huge. How does that type of, and same thing with, same thing with email too. How does that type of story inform how you think about a calendar? Right, because if you think about it for a second, email, total normie, I'm logging onto the internet with Windows 95, Internet Explorer, or Netscape, AOL, whatever, right. 1995. Email, that's why I use email. I don't think about it. It's just the default thing. WordPress, hey, I want to launch a news website. The web developer says, hey, use WordPress. It's simple, it's easy. You use it yourself. How does that work in your context? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, if we think of the web in a sense of, I mean, obviously we have centralized players like Facebook and, and uh, WhatsApp and Instagram who control core pieces of communications, right? Text and timelines. But then we also have email, which, I mean, obviously Google, like Gmail has a massive, massive market share, but um, you can, like, it's 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 still decentralized in a sense where if if Google doesn't want you, like, if, if you don't want to make a Google account, you can spin up your own email server in a minute, like, so, or, or just go to your local cloud provider, get a domain and get an inbox or something. So it's, it's pretty, it's very, very accessible. Like it, there's no one banning you from using that service. Whereas if you get banned on WhatsApp or firewalls, you know, we, we talk about like um, some countries banning certain apps open protocols like open source and decentralized like decentralized platforms pretty much are not able to be taken down because there's no centralized company to go after and block them like for us as as cal.com inc the the, the uh, startup that is running cal uh, if we go bankrupt tomorrow let's hope not like, like hope knock on wood the company itself would die but Everything we've built would sustain, we would survive, you know, like there's all this IP and the community and the developers who would sustain and build and continue to iterate on the product and, and, and make it grow. So in that regard, if you if we think about communications and I fundamentally think like I, I'm a huge advocate of Signal, I still think Signal could do even more to be more open and transparent, um, but I'm a massive fan of of, of um open communications and, and, and 
yeah, in a sense, decentralized communications. Like you and me, we shouldn't be going through a company to be talking in a sense. And we shouldn't also go through a company to make an appointment, right? So if, if you want to, you can have a Cal.com link. But if you say, no, I'm good, I'm, I'm running my own um, small uh, barber shop and uh, I just want people to come through my, my web interface, that's perfectly fine, you know? Like that's the beauty of being open source and providing the source code for the public. This is fascinating. So you just made a value statement where you said, we shouldn't be going through a company. I'm not going to mention the name of our recording device because this is that'd be a weird time for, I'm not going to name which recording software we're not going to go through. It's like the anti, uh, I like this company, so I'm going to do an anti um, negative endorsement here. But if, if, if that's true, why hasn't open source quote unquote won? Or is even me thinking about that? Is is me thinking about things in that context the wrong way of approaching it? No, I mean you make a valid point. Um there's there's um there's strength in centralization, there's strength, there's power in in monopolies, right? Um and what we've seen in the past, uh, whether it was freemium open source like like FOSS, free open source software, FOSS. Um, it goes back to the point that building something at scale is really hard without resources. You know, if you don't have, let's say, venture funding, it's really hard to build a multi-billion-dollar company, right? So, if you have the funding and you, you keep the code close to your chest and it's all pri- like it's all closed source and you you have 100% ownership and you can you can decide who's getting in, who's getting out, and how we charge them and change your pricing and ban people. It's much easier to enforce power over your market than if it's a small, you know, freemium, like indie developer who just launched something open source. So I think the most explosive combinations of, of open source organizations and at, at the end of the day are also open source projects is when you can f- like fit both like the, the venture sized backed company with resources and engineers on staff head of like lead designers like kind of like gitlab you know gitlab is going gitlab is going to ipo they just filed their s1 mm-hmm. right so that's for me is just inspiring to see such a massive company that is used by government entities or mega enterprise companies while still having this culture of everything's open they open source their playbooks their company cultures and Everyone, you know, can look into the code base and, and copy and make changes. And it's really accessible for engineers. So in a sense, um, that's what really drives uh, massive adoption when you have both. You know, you can sustain your company with, you can sustain the community with the commercialization of your product. Something, since you, you referenced open and y'all, actually, I want to I wanna hit, two different points here. You were just speaking about the long-term future of cow.com. Once again, knocking on wood, nothing bad happens. But can you speak about the longevity guarantee, which you seem to be referring to? Just the actual structure, because this was a concept I'd never really thought of before. And I think it's interesting just to hear operationally what that means. And just to pull a quick line from your website copy, you know, cow.com is built for the future of the web. 
We believe that code is abundant and should be owned by both everyone and no one, which leads into the longevity guarantee and that underlying idea there. So it'd be great to hear you expand on that and how people should think about that, especially given the open nature of the conversation. Yeah. No, I mean, again, we, with open source, we like the train has passed to get rid of the code, you know, like um, there's a concept called forks on GitHub for those non-technical listeners. If you fork a project, mm-hmm. you create a lo- like a copy of, of that code base, right? So you, you, you fork it away and then you, at some point, if you make changes, you can like merge it back into the main product. So for us, even if we tried, the damage has been done. The code is there. Everything's, everything's there, you know, like we can't take it back. There's no, no, no takey backs here. So, um, even if we wanted to, with all the lawyer budget in the world, we couldn't get rid of the code base that we've created. Um, I think that's very inspiring to anyone who, who wants to use scheduling for the next five, 10 years, knowing that they will never lose access to, you know, the core piece of their business. If it's scheduling, like a barbershop or, a yoga teacher or a personal trainer or, or a big enterprise company that does hundreds of thousands of, of bookings a year. Um, so I think that's very, by design, that's longevity. But we actually went a step further and um, outlined that in the rare event that the company doesn't make it or not even doesn't make it, but we may at some point pivot into something that maybe even more exciting, which I don't really see down the road. But let's say every one of our engineers, you know, stops working on this. We we want to create an open foundation, just a nonprofit that overtakes kind of like authority on this project. So we would A, fund it with mm. donations, just public like um, nonprofit donations, but also we would staff correctly and, and hand over access to the GitHub repository, which at the end of the day decides what type of code comes in, what type of code gets out. Um, so yeah, we have these agreements in place. We would love to, I mean, obviously never think about this use, this, this case happening. But I think for anyone who looks into, into software, I think this is just going to be, for any open source company, it is the default, right? Like, there's no, no going back, even if, like, yeah, if, if the worst thing's worse, the both of our founders and the team i don't know dies in a flight accident again like knock on woods nothing happens but uh let's hope it doesn't doesn't happen but um yeah it would still be relatively fine (laughs) um so i think most companies if you i mean yeah i can count probably 10 companies right now where when the founder dies the everything crashes that's not the case for us in a sense in that sense so um, I think that's beautiful. I'm incredibly superstitious, so I really hope we haven't jinxed this entire recording. But <laughs> I want to get to a bigger. I'm really knocking soon. on wood here. <laughs> I, I want to. I, I I really liked. I guess I'm the target market for everything you all do because I liked the copy when you talk about as part of the longevity guarantee, building for the future of the web. Right. And we've kind of danced around it throughout this conversation, but I would just love to hear your articulation of what that future could look like, does look like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because as you said, you've been in this space for more than 10 years. 
we're noticing with the podcast itself, there's deep, deep, deep interest with folks on the web two to web three transition. So this is actually a really useful time to think about, let me put it a better way. The term future of web means way more in 2021 than it would have in 2015. I wouldn't have asked yes. a question about it specifically no. given that copy. So we'd just love to hear your, I'm sure you have some type of vision, more expansive bit there. We'd love to hear that. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, I think it's what everyone's kind of going through looking at all the downsides of web 2.0, which kind of, you know, the this times of social media, the times of centralized, like really centralized monopoly power on the web. I mean, the web started out as a decentralized, you know, network of, of websites. And within mm. five years or 10 years, we've consolidated all of the traffic into like three companies or so. I mean, AWS, I don't know how, what market share they, they cover off the web. So, um, I think if we, if we, if we truly think of the future of web, that is kind of going back to its roots, you know, I mean, the, it's the future is kind of like what what the web was intended to be to be connecting people and making it open and accessible for everyone you know like it, it was a, it was by its core a network where you didn't need permission you know you, it's, per, it's permissionless information you don't need to ask someone um to to do something it's kind of like the whole thesis of startups as well to dodge the the gatekeepers so i think if if people refer to the future of web that means going back to the core values of, of um, being open and, and accessible. So in that regard, we're really, really at the edge of Web 3.0. We're not decentralized in the sense of our, our, our backend still runs on, you know, on cloud and, and we have a, a paid plan. But I think what I'm really excited about, and obviously the future is called the future because it's not there yet, is blockchains that are really efficient for us to run scheduling in like in a decentralized way where you could come up with a calendar protocol, which runs decentralized, fully encrypted. Who knows what, what Google calendar is reading in your calendar events, you know, what, what they're do, using with their data mm-hmm. or, or Microsoft or some, someone else. So really going back to the core of how can we build a protocol like email, which is at its core decentralized, but then also be able to protect it. And that was the missing piece of Web 2.0. We couldn't protect the decentralization. We couldn't protect companies from taking over protocols and, you know, building their applications on top. But now with the, with the Web 3.0 technologies of um, incentives, you know, like incentivizing engineers to keep it decentral, not even engineers, whole organizations, you know, like, like decentralized, like DAOs mm. and stuff. Um, suddenly you have a different power dynamic where it's actually economically incentivized to keep something decentralized. And and that's something I'm really, really excited about to dive into in the next few months or years. It's not a core priority for us. Like our core intent is still to build again, the open source and the commercial side of our business. But given that every web 3.0 company is open source by design, like every cryptocurrency is open source. You can't make a cryptocurrency that's not open source, but like it's physically impossible for those who who are just joining. Um, a cryptocurrency is, is an open source project that is run on a, 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 a range of different servers, right? So to launch a cryptocurrency or a, a blockchain, you need to be open source, right? So every by design, every web 3.0 company has an open source protocol. 
which also means to go into Web 3.0, to be part of the future of Web, you need to be open source if you're not, like if you're not already. So if you think of all the companies who um, who don't have their source code open, it will be a it will be almost impossible for them to 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 make the wedge to make the jump into Web 3.0. They would probably not go out of business, but they won't reap the benefits of of what the new new web has to offer. So we're really excited that um, while we still work in the you know we have a, a centralized server that runs the bookings. But one day, who knows, um, a blockchain, let's say Ethereum or Solana or some other blockchain is efficient enough for us to run actually the whole infrastructure decentralized the way, you know, Filecoin is fully decentralized. Um, that's, I think that's, that'll gonna, that's gonna be a, an amazing day for, for everyone in, in our team and community. We're very unlikely launching our own cryptocurrency just because I'm not a big fan of that. You know, I'm, I'm not a, like, don't expect a Calcoin anytime soon. Um, please don't quote me on that in, in a few months. Um, but yeah, so no, but we're really looking forward for what the scaling, um, challenges will be and and yeah, run everything in, in a decentralized cloud. You said a couple interesting things that I want to pull out. So one, you made the point that what's interesting about this space is that there are incentives at a structural level that would keep things decentralized. Because what always interests me is the dynamic where oftentimes things centralize and that creates an opportunity to decentralize, but then it goes the other way around too. So you're making the point that looking at these spaces, there are actually worlds where there are incentives to keep things towards that direction, back towards that initial ambition that many folks had for the internet. And then two would just be this idea that I really want to get to before we get to the name change to tie everything together, which is just just openness. You, um, I'd never come across. I, I seriously, I recommend everyone go to the Cal website. It's it's not overly expansive, but they're just interesting things there. I'd never heard of this open startup concept. So you go to it, and there's always information about your salary and what's really going on there. And the topic of this episode really is not just, you know, calendar products, but openness on the internet. Could you, could you talk to what attracted you to do that in the first place and what the advantages are of running a startup that way? Oh yeah. I mean, I've seen a few more companies like the concept of open startup is not really new. Um, there's Nomad List or Remote OK, both run by by Peter Levels, I think is his name. Um, so that's, I'd say, some of the more interesting. Like they have a lot more information than we have today. I mean, my job is to like allocate enough data that I can make a a lot of more fancy graphs. But um, I think there's um, I think Buffer is actually one of the biggest open open startups. So if you heard of Buffer, it's like a I think it's a social media. Um, automation tool or so and I think they have like well let me check after the episode like millions of, of revenue and they show <laughs> like management executive salary so it's really interesting to see see this change of, of transparency I'm, I'm from Germany and in, 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 in our I wouldn't say 
now culture, but like at least in the companies that I've worked for in the past, it was not a prop real problem to talk about your salary, right? Like it's, it was okay. Whereas I've then joined other companies and, and I worked in, 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 let's say in the U S and I talked to other founders and they kept it so closely, like locked away, like whatever everyone's making to a point where if that information leaks, it would cause like a catastrophic event in the company. And I think that just creates a lot of Pandora's boxes, you know, and I, I, my job as a CEO, as a, as a co-founder shouldn't be to like find the enough treasures to lock away all that knowledge. I think my job is to be as transparent, as open as, as, as literally at cap, like at maximum. So it becomes a default, you know, everyone's open, everyone's transparent. There's obviously business, like business related information that you're not really letting out the, you know, the, the door which could harm your business or could uh you know like like data essentially like, like if you're required to be compliant in certain laws like we can't just publish everyone's birthday or something um no but i think every information that can be public and your your organization still survives you know like there's no internal conflicts or there's no um major you know fuck-ups um that's great because it's one less thing that I need to worry about. It's kind of like, you know, when the biggest problem of liars is not the lying, it's the remembering who you lie to and what you, what you actually lied, you know? So if you're very open, very transparent and very honest, and everything you do is based on the, the values of, of openness and transparency, it's a, it's a really fun life because you're not <laughs> like, did I tell that? Did I tell this? Who did I like? Does this person know that person's salary? Is this one, you know? So it, it becomes much more easy to, to navigate um, both the culture and just overall the, the company and the organization when uh, everything that's, I mean, yeah, it just becomes much easier uh, to, to operate. But obviously that's not the main reason. The main reason is to push our values, you know, the, the open sourceness. So as we're nearing the end here, I'd love for you to tell the story behind changing to cow.com process. I mean, what, what Calen, Calenso? Calenso, yeah. Was the name before? Mm -hmm. Okay. I, uh, I mispronounced that in my head. So maybe that's why simplified names are good. <laughs> um, so yeah, I would just, you know, would love to talk about, um, the thought, the thought process there, how you approached it simplicity advantages, Clenso, what that even meant in the first place, basically the toll top line. Calenzo was a, was a great side project. It was uh, a great domain that I was able to get like off the registry. You know, it was not pre-owned by someone. I could just um, register calenzo.com. It had its, I'd say, pros that it was a unique name. You know, it was not a word that was defined before or used before. Um, but then as, as you, you know, just proved the point, not everyone was able to pronounce it immediately correctly or something. So I think that is a, a, a major benefit to, to rebrand to cal.com because we've been using cal as an abbreviation for calendars since I think calendars existed. I mean, at least I was doing that in a few others that I've talked to. So like, Hey, can you find time in my cal that sounds natural? You know, like it just, it just goes with the flow <laughs> or he's my cal or, um, book my cal or, uh, my cal is full, you know, so it, it really works in, in that regard. But, um, 
I think for us, the most interesting or the most important reason to rebrand was the, as you said, the simplicity of sharing the link. So it's, it's a bit of economics, ergonomics, where if you go from eight letters, which is calendar down to three letters, you're saving like 60% of letters and 60% of letters also means 60% less typing. It means 60% faster sending, um, that your, your calendar, if you type in calendar.com slash peer, that's literally like a second or two versus three or four or five seconds. So if I'm, if I'm someone who, who does a lot of bookings, I already, like, I personally see the benefit, even though it's just six, five, five letters less, I already see the benefits of that. Um, so I think that's just great because our, our job, our, our mission is to make scheduling more efficient, accessible, and, you know, drive that adoption. And, and with that amazing brand, we, we're not only getting, you know, better better brand authority over, over the market, but also just make, it's one of the weird reasons, weird rebrands where it's actually core part of the product too. You know, like <laughs> if a company that I don't really care about changes their name, doesn't really improve my product, like my use of the product. But for us, it actually did. It, it made everyone's link shorter. It made, it saves everyone time and made some more memorable and shareable. So yeah, I, I, I'm really, really grateful how everything turned out with that acquisition. Okay, that's so interesting, that last bit, because I recently, there's a buy now, pay later later service I used that rebranded itself. And I was kind of wondering, why do they pick this name? It doesn't appear to be any better. It's kind of random, but you actually, as you just said, you found a name that is easier and is clearer. Do you have any generic advice for founders considering rebrands? Hmm. I mean, generic. Um, so for us, we wouldn't have bought the domain if we weren't in the link sharing business. You know, I mean, it's again, it's part of the business to share your link, right? If we were, let's say, a dating app and our core product would live in the app store, you would probably get away with a catchy name, like an app name that's memorable, but you may not own that .com domain. Maybe... Um, let's call it Meetly. You know, let's say you make a Tinder app, like a t- Tinder alternative, and you call it Meetly. You're probably not getting Meetly.com because that's used by some, I don't know, it, it may be too expensive. But you could probably rank on that keyword in the App Store if it's memorable, short, and, and, and you know, people use it. In fact, I think Tinder didn't even have Tinder when they started out. Tinder.com, sorry. So they didn't, I, I think they they bought the domain afterwards. So I think, for rebranding, um, I've had some of the worst. I've ran some of the worst named businesses, which is called Snapcardster. It's twelve letters. You couldn't even write it down <laughs> if I said it. Um, and it was it was a mixture of um, it was a magic like Magic the Gathering business. So it was like a reference from the trading card game, but then like one word was changed, so it would refer to snapping a card, and then. It's a mess. So I went from 12letters.com to Cal, which is, you know, probably one of the most premium, like, there's not many three-letter domains out there to to buy anyway. Um, so in that regard, it's probably one of the most unique names out there. And it's, at the end of the day, it's all about m- being memorable. Um, if you find a way to make, you know, Spotify, it was 
that was not a word, like, but it's very memorable. Mm-hmm. So, uh, or, or, or yeah, Shopify. I mean, it's also very memorable. Um, I think that's something would, uh, which I would always focus on. And my last advice is that yes, it's, .com is most likely always worth it. Um, like, I don't think we would have seen our traction now with the rebranding if it was Cal.io or Cal.ai or Cal.me. Um, just because it just gives you authority and brand recognition and, and it's just trust, you know? And the funny thing is, so Cal, like .com, we're on the web. .com is the default. Like, if you ever forget the domain ending from a brand, you put in cal.com, right? So if, if, if I forget a, if, if I know a service by name, let's say Sandgrid, and I remember someone told me about Sandgrid, and I go on in the address bar, I put in sandgrid.com. Like, I'm not putting in sandgrid.io or sandgrid.me or sandgrid.app. <laughs> it's always.com. You know, it's always the default. It's so burned into our brains that, um, I think it's always worth the <laughs> the premium f- for for that rebranding. So that that combined with the memorability, if you can't find, let's say, Meetly.com, maybe go for like MeetlyHub.com or MeetlyHQ.com. Or I'm actually not a big fan of Let's Let's Meet or Try mm-hmm. Meet or Join Meet because the problem is you want in your browser you want to have your brand d- domain start with a brand name because if you like i navigate like open tab t goes to twitter you know t twitter or mm-hmm. y youtube or g google if you if you compete with try and join and go you you you're ranked in the list of all the other joins and tries and meets and let's right so that's something i i'm not a big fan of um, I'd rather go with HQ or, um, or, or, or base or, or something else that you can put at the, at the end. Um, but yeah, that's kind of like the, my one-on-one on domains and, and branding. So for our last one-on-one question or one-on-one question, how do you advise for news you can use people who are listening, manage their calendars? My calendar is a disaster, so I'm hoping for... Yeah, it's a good point. It's a good point. Producer yeah. so Jackson, who's listening and has to deal with this, is also wondering <laughs> how I can fix my uh, terrible calendar, yeah. too. Yeah. Um, there's two... I mean, two two things that I would say is important. Knowing which schedule you're on. Like, are you, like... It's a common word, but, like, are you on a manager schedule or on a maker schedule? And the manager schedule is fairly condensed you know you have a lot of meetings a lot of check-ins a lot of day-to-day things you need to take care of so you have a fairly busy calendar but the the maker schedule probably has like only two or five events per week right and that's probably checking with the team checking with investors or checking with some someone else and then you have focus time to be doing your most important work um i like to switch back and forth like really take out a week or two weeks I'm only doing like the manager schedule, let's say fundraising or, you know, very important, like for the launch, for example, the launch, like everything leading up to the launch. Um, I use a plugin called Clockwise, which is also used by OnDeck to put in focus time into your calendar. It has a bit of AI. I don't really know if it's good or bad, but like at least it blocks out time on my 
calendar, it just puts it as busy. Um, that helped me a lot to not be overbooked. Um, and then the last thing I recommend is we have a feature at Cal where it's called opt-in bookings. So if someone ever leaks your link, let's say you get Marshall, cal.com slash Marshall, and someone leaks that link or someone just without your consent books you, right? You, they book you next Monday. With every, I've done the research with every other scheduling product out there, you would get an entry in your calendar. So you would need to cancel that one and maybe even apologize or say, hey, sorry, I can't make it or whatsoever. Like, because it's rude. You, you just don't cancel someone, you know? For the opt-in bookings, you have a middle layer. You have a dashboard where all the new bookings come in and they give you a small blurb of why you should meet them. So, and then you can confirm a meeting or reject a meeting. If you reject the meeting, you can add a reason saying like, hey, can we take this async over iMessage or over email or here's a link to the resource that you're looking for. So it's a much more elegant way of actually protecting your calendar. And the benefit is you can actually publicly share your link, your booking link, without being afraid that people just DOS your calendar, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. like DOS, in a sense, they just put in like every every day is booked. Um, because you're in charge, you can decide opt-in, no, reject, confirm, confirm, reject. Um, and that's a feature I'm really happy about uh, that we've launched fairly early because uh, it was a bit of peace of mind for myself. So I'm, I have a bit of protection for people who just, you know, constantly want to hey, let's jump on a 15-minute Zoom call. Like, uh, can you just give me a bit of, you know, intel? Maybe I can point you to the right person without a video call or something. Thanks for joining us in the deep end. If you enjoyed your stay, give us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with your friends and colleagues to help grow the show with us. We've also got show notes and more episodes available at ideas.beyonddeck.com. See you next time.